1: So I'm very happy to have Chris Ives with us again. He spoke at, spoken at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate in 2012 and 2020. Chris is a professor at Stonehill College in Boston and is a a fine scholar of Japanese Buddhism and Japanese Zen particularly, and also is one of the uh, foremost scholars of uh, Zen and Buddhist social ethics. So Uh, It's appropriate that he's talking today about Buddhism and the climate crisis. Uh, 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 Of course, climate breakdown is with us everywhere in the world and uh, is is at least as great a threat to uh, everyone as uh, the nuclear weapons race and the rise of fascism. And, and uh, so it's it's uh, really important to uh, have Chris speaking today about Buddhism and uh, how we may respond to the climate crisis. Chris, thanks, thank you for being here again.
2: Well, thank you, Ty, again. Can everyone hear me okay? Is the audio good? Thank you, Jan. Thank you, Dylan. Um, yeah. Greetings from the Boston area. It's wonderful to be with you again today. Thank you, Ty, again, for inviting me. Thank you, David, for hosting us on Zoom. And what I'd like to do is to give you an overview, maybe over the course of 45, 50 minutes. I know um, how often the discussion following a presentation is often a lot richer than the presentation. Um, But what I'd like to do is to give you a quick overview of a book I'm writing. I'm on sabbatical right now from Stonehill College and working on a book on Buddhism and the climate crisis. And in part, what the book is, is my attempt um, as a practicing Buddhist to take stock of Buddhist resources that can help me and other people live in a way that is both, you know, green and engaged and fulfilling at this very challenging time. Um, I think a lot of religious traditions, as you'll see in my presentation, uh, with their emphasis on simple living, being close to the land, um, offer a way of living greenly and in an engaged manner in activism that's not self-sacrifice and deprivation, but is perhaps a more rewarding and fulfilling and spiritually rewarding way of living than the normal rat race of uh, consumerism or materialism. Um, So yeah, if you can bear with me, I'm gonna move fairly quickly just to give you a certain kind of overview of what I'm thinking about in the book. And then, uh, yeah, we can discuss it and we can drill down more deeply in certain points uh, that I may pass through um, pretty quickly. So if that sounds good, I'm actually uh, gonna share my screen with a PowerPoint Um, That way you can at least maybe get a better sense of uh, what I'm talking about here and and track everything. Just give me one second here. All right. Some of you may know when Buddhists talk about environmental issues, um, often they start with consumerism and obviously certain ways of living for privileged people, not necessarily people who are struggling or people in certain parts of the world. um, Those ways of living do have a huge uh, ecological footprint um, especially carbon footprint and so uh, two of the books that uh, first came out when Buddhists really started talking at least in the English language about environmental problems focused on consumerism um, and I have two here um, that have been quite popular and looking at how and here's where consumerism is kind of low-hanging fruit for Buddhists um, the whole Buddhist critique of desire Um, Desire in the sense of craving for things we don't have and clinging to things we do have um, really lends itself as an angle on consumerism. Or put it the other way, consumerism lends itself to a Buddhist analysis. Um, When I look at this with my students, um, yeah, being a professor type, you know, I'm kind of a stickler for defining our terms. And here basically, um, yeah, is a working definition I've used with my students. Where consumerism is an ism, it's a certain belief, like socialism, capitalism, other isms involving beliefs, um, and yeah, very broadly, a belief that you know buying or being able to buy and acquire and possess certain things, experiences, situations will make you happy, and the actions based on that, um, certain consumer behaviors, you know, retail therapy, um, buying more stuff than we need, confusing wants and needs. And when I think about this, um, you know, if we use this as a working definition, as I've looked at this with my students, I think for a lot of people, um, if we think about sort of middle class and above or lower middle class, who knows where to draw the line. But for a lot of people, the issue is not so much. I want more and more. The more and more stuff I have, the happier I'll be. I don't think most of us are bought into that full blown ideology around consumerism as an ism but i think the issue for a lot of us is the fear of having less in other words being attached to our lifestyle it's not so much that i want a second or third car or a huge house but the issue ecologically might be no um, i'm attached to having my car air conditioning being able to eat meat when i want to travel when winter starts getting to me Um, These sorts of attachments to our way of living, a way of living that has a huge carbon footprint. Um, And so for me, it's not so much wanting to have more, um, but it's being attached to what we currently have, our lifestyle. In other words, it's more an issue of clinging than craving. When we think of the Buddhist analysis of desire, again, craving for things we don't have versus clinging to things we do have. So maybe to tweak it a little, the bigger issue may be materialism, our attachment to material comforts, to material conditions, more than some kind of consumerist wanting more and more and buying more and more and polluting more and more. Um, And so perhaps if we think about the climate crisis and its causation, something I'm looking at in the book is sort of zeroing in on this attachment to lifestyle and its resultant environmental impact as one cause of the environmental crisis, especially the climate crisis. And again, this is something that uh, for Buddhist um, doctrines, Buddhist approaches, is a kind of low-hanging fruit here. The other thing that I think Buddhism is helpful with has to do with why aren't more people waking up and taking action? Why does it seem that so many people are sleepwalking, even if they are somewhat aware of the climate crisis? Or in some cases, why is it there's so many people that are ignoring it or denying it? And this is where I think Buddhism is helpful, getting at the kind of, um, the term I use here is freneticism, our scurrying, our multitasking, and the resultant distraction caused and in some cases exacerbated by certain ways of using technology. Um, always being there in virtual realities, um, being scattered as you're going to Instagram, to Facebook, to text, to email, whatever that might be. And so in the early part of the book, in addition to looking at materialism as a cause of the problem, I also spend some time looking at freneticism and distraction as a hindrance to responding. Um, Buddhism may be helping us not only simplify our lifestyle, getting us out of that materialism, but also Buddhism helping us slow down and pay more attention. And when I think about um, distraction and Buddhist doctrines, you know, we often talk about ignorance in Buddhism. And as you know, often ignorance in early Buddhism is ignorance of impermanence. Or in the Zen tradition, depending on what style of Zen, ignorance can be seen more as entrapment in that dualistic mode of experiencing that me not me way that we often experience reality but i like to play with ignorance and drop in a hyphen thinking of ignorance also as ignorance um ignoring certain things and i think there too we can work with buddhist doctrines and apply them to the climate crisis because when it comes to the climate crisis ignorance and ignorance are all over the place Ignorance, perhaps as a total lack of knowledge, you know, probably aren't that many people out there right now, but obliviousness to the climate crisis or ignorance in the sense of being misinformed, um, believing that, yeah, either humans are not responsible or um, the problem isn't that bad. And uh, yeah, it's not going to really hurt us. Um, Ignorance, ignorance as distraction. Um, Again, people in some cases having to be busy. You know, if you're working multiple jobs to pay the rent, to not starve, to not end up unhoused, yeah, obviously being distracted and busy is understandable. But for a lot of us, people of privilege or simply people who've got their basic needs met, yeah, we know a lot about the distraction that's happening these days. Again, with sports, celebrity culture, um, our gadgets, our apps, et cetera. Also, there's just ignoring the problem, you know, people who are aware of their problem but say, no, I'm too busy, you know, I'm raising three kids or I'm working a job and I'm trying to become a partner in the law firm. Um, yeah, I just can't deal with it right now. Or in some cases, ignorance of our causal responsibility. We might say I drive a Prius or an electric vehicle. Um, I'm not responsible. It's all, you know, the people they are driving big gas guzzlers, um, but not realizing, yeah, Maybe our way of heating our home, our travel, Um, we're still responsible even if we drive an electric vehicle. Um, Also, ignorance of actions we can take. You know, what can I do? Um, Or basically saying it's up to elected officials. The government's got to impose a carbon tax or do campaign finance reform. That's not something that I can do. Um, It's the responsibility of elected officials. Um, Ideas that continue our destructive lifestyle. Um, The second coming of Christ is going to happen soon. The key focus should be on getting right with Christ and getting to heaven rather than looking at this or a belief in a technological fix. Um, Market processes, supply and demand will be such that, yeah, there'll be market demand for some kind of technological fix. And we'll figure out some new snazzy way to sequester carbon dioxide or do something else to rectify or to uh, mitigate the problem. Um, Also tied into this, ideas about others. You know, why should we do anything when the Chinese are doing X, Y, or Z, or other people are, um, yeah, at fault? It's all the oil company executives, and, you know, those are the people responsible. They've got to do something. And then the last thing, and I'll circle back to this, is, you know, for a lot of people, just, you know, disconnection from nature, psychological disconnection, even though in actuality we're profoundly embedded in nature um, as another factor here in terms of, um, yeah, ignorance and distraction relative to the climate crisis. So in other words, yeah, what I'm playing with in the book is materialism as one cause of the crisis and our freneticism and ignorance as a hindrance to responding. And again, um, I'm starting in the book with these in part because I think Buddhism in these two areas has a lot it can bring to the table. Uh, as we will see down the line, there are certain areas where Buddhism may not have as much to offer and we may need to look elsewhere for guidance. Um, but I think in these two areas, um, yeah, Buddhism has a lot to offer. And so the question is, let's just start with the freneticism and the distraction and then we'll get back to the high impact materialistic living. Um, so with our phoneticism and distraction, yeah, basically, one thing we need to do is to slow down and pay attention. And one thing I've been thinking about, there are a lot of ways we could approach this from a Buddhist angle. Um, but one thing I've been thinking about, and it actually started about five years ago, when I finished a 10-year stint as the department chair of our Department of Religious Studies at Stonehill College, with all the politics and stress and overtime that that entailed. And when I finished that stint, That word kind of just bubbled up into my consciousness, almost sort of like a mantra or some kind of reminder, spaciousness. And I suddenly felt my life was a lot more spacious. And I started working with that. And it's there in Buddhism. And the way I've been working with it is in the three areas of action, the three areas of karma. As you know, karma meaning action, Um, mental activity in our mind verbal or speech activity, basically our mouth, and physical actions using our body. And I have the three Japanese characters here. Often Japanese Buddhists talk about Buddhism occurring in these three arenas. Um, And you see this, for example, in different lists of detrimental actions, detrimental mental states. Um, Here is a list of the ten detrimental actions. You can see the first three are physical actions overlapping with the five precepts. Four through seven are verbal actions. These actually come out of the eightfold path where the Buddha is talking about different types of incorrect speech. And he lists these four. And then mental actions, mental activity. And here are the three poisons, greed, ill will, and ignorance, with a slightly different wording um, as mental activity that does get us into trouble. And so one question is, yeah, how to work with these and how, for example, in terms of mental activity, how to acquire a kind of mental spaciousness. In other words, and you know, I'm going to be simplifying and moving kind of quickly here. When we think about our Zen practice, you know, a lot of Zen teachers, and I'm not sure about Taigen's actual way of uh, presenting the Dharma. Um, I've heard Taigen speak and I've listened to a lot of his Dharma talks there on the website. Um, but as you may know, Uh, Zen teachers in general talk about, yeah, by giving ourselves fully to the breath over time, mental activity can settle down. We get a kind of spaciousness, a little distance from the mental clutter, the mental chatter, and in some cases shift from thinking, our obsessive thinking and worrying, to more of a calm awareness. Or as Buddhists sometimes say, we open up sky mind um and here's the buddha um and this is a quotation attributed to him by jack hornfield can't uh, jack hornfield and i haven't been able to find this in the the sutras but uh develop a mind that is vast like space where experiences both pleasant and unpleasant can appear and disappear without conflict struggle or harm rest in a mind like vast sky Or Hui Nung, the sixth ancestor, the sixth patriarch of the Zen lineage, writes, true jhana, meditation or zazen, is to realize that one's own nature is like space and that thoughts and sensations come and go in the original mind like birds in the sky leaving no trace. And so, again, trying to get at that state of awareness where the mind has been calmed down and yeah thoughts will arise the mind does secrete thoughts that's what our mind does but how to have the spaciousness like a sky to allow those thoughts to pass rather than glomming onto them getting entangled in them and we're off to the races obsessing with thoughts or worries um Dogen, i think in part is getting at this from a slightly different angle um, I know you all have studied and chant Genjo Koan, that one essay in his larger magnum opus, the Shobo Genzo, but the oft-quoted line, to study the Buddha way is to study the self, to study the self is to forget the self, to forget the self is to be realized by the myriad things. And I know Taigen has a way of um, talking about this in my own understanding and you know, bear with the limits of that understanding you know this is similar to that idea of yeah forgetting the self letting go of that obsessive thinking and worrying by giving ourselves to the breath in zazen settling into that calm more composed spaciousness in which you can be aware of the myriad things in a sense your calm empty mind can be filled by what's out there in some ways overcoming that Dualism between me and the not me out there, like when we're filled by a beautiful sunset or boom, beautiful music, or other experiences where that sense of separation drops away at least momentarily. Um, chosen bays, as you know, a Zen teacher out in Oregon says, We teach the mind to empty itself and stand ready, alert but relaxed, waiting for whatever will appear next. Um, again. Mental spaciousness as that open, present receptivity. In some ways, being present. And there's another idea in Dogen that I've been thinking a lot about and uh, basically, um, yeah, fits right into this, is the Buddhist idea of emptiness um, in Sanskrit, Shunyata. And it's always translated with this character that you can see here in three cases, Ku in Japanese. And it's interesting, this character for emptiness in Sanskrit shunyata, which is another way ultimately of talking about interconnectedness, interbeing, dependent origination. But that character has several connotations. One is emptiness, um, something being emptied. And when the character stands alone, like when you say, oh, that's an empty glass, it's pronounced kata. This character also can mean spacious. And it appears in certain compounds with another character like Kukan, which simply means physical space. And there, yeah, it's pronounced Ku. This is also, intriguingly, the character for the sky. And here it's pronounced Sora. And so it's interesting in Japanese, this one character that's used to translate the sort of highfalutin Buddhist doctrine of emptiness has these several connotations that do pertain to the type of awareness that I'm discussing here in the context of spaciousness. Again, a mind that is emptied, spacious and like the sky. One other concept in Dogen, um, and this is the character or the the compound Genjo that's there at the beginning of Genjo Koan, that important essay by Dogen. This character is also relevant here. And I I work with this in the book as well um, as a way of talking about presencing. And we can talk about Genjo Koan, the essay, and how Presencing might enter into that. But this also appears in another essay by Dogen in Shobo Genzo, Sansui-kyo, The Mountains and Waters Sutra, is a way to translate that. And the first line of it, I have it here in Japanese for you, but one rendering of this, and this is um, not a typical rendering, The Mountains and Waters of the present are doing, or simply are, the presencing, the genjo spoken of by Buddhas long ago. And this idea of presencing is similar to what we were saying a minute ago when through zazen, we break free from that mental clutter, that mental distractedness, all of the thinking and worrying, and can be more present, can be more calmly witnessing what we're experiencing with that open, spacious mind. Again, getting back to that other line from Dogen, forget the self, let go of that self-preoccupied thinking and worrying, and be confirmed or filled by the myriad things, whatever you might be experiencing, attending to them, being present to them, as a kind of presencing of oneself, doing genjo, and things like the mountains and waters or that beautiful sunset, that piece of music, the face of a loved one is pres- present, presencing itself in its suchness. And partly, I think what Dogen's getting at and maybe what Zen practice is getting at is that ability to be fully present, presence yourself as this open, receptive sky mind and be filled by the presencing That vibratory appearing, presencing, manifesting of things around you in their suchness, whether it's that sunset, that music, the steam coming off your cup of tea, whatever is happening experientially in the moment. And ultimately, the sense of me being present and that presenting itself to me, dropping away and boom, what we have is just this. Uh, I know Dan and his, trans or Taigen and his translation work has worked a lot with the idea of suchness uh, with certain Chinese masters and all. Um, he can speak to this a lot better than I can, but that sense of boom, that non-dual experience, that experience with no sense of separation where reality is there in its suchness presenting or presencing itself. And I think one reason I'm talking about this is a kind of mental spaciousness. Not only does this help us overcome that kind of distracted, scatteredness that makes us hard to really focus on the climate crisis, but it also provides a kind of Zen practice foundation for staying calmly present to be able to face things like the climate crisis, or we know in our own lives to be able to be in the ER. When a friend has been brought in by an ambulance or sit with bad, disturbing news and to have that sense of groundedness, that centeredness, that presence where we can sit with it, be with it without freaking out, without looking away, without numbing out. And this as a kind of resource, I think Zen offers not only to help us overcome our freneticism that makes it hard to keep the eye on the ball with environmental and other problems, but also giving us a kind of focus and resilience to stay with it, to stay present, to not shut down, to not go into psychic numbing or whatever else. Um, So that's some of the stuff I'm doing with mental spaciousness vis-a-vis the climate crisis. In terms of those two other areas of karma, of action, our mouths verbal activity and our body's spatial activity Um, yeah i also have sections and i won't get into this now uh, looking at verbal spaciousness not only um, opening up space in our conversation by speaking more succinctly for example or allowing for silence but also in terms of listening and in part yeah trying to think about what zen practice might offer as a kind of verbal spaciousness that can help with communication, with dialogue, with finding common ground with people on the other side on issues like the climate crisis, helping us to be able to engage in a way, at least in so far as it's partly possible, to achieve some kind of common ground, commonality. Um, personally, I don't like the red state, blue state dichotomy. I think it exacerbates divisiveness uh, more than simply describing reality. Um, but be that as it may, in the book I'm thinking about communication as something important right now. And then physical spaciousness, um, our bodies moving through time, how we get overscheduled, multitasking, um, but also spatial separate spaciousness, um, literal spaciousness in terms of um how we organize our space, dealing with clutter in a way that may support us in our efforts to stay awake, to stay present, to keep our eye on the ball. And so in other words, you know, when it comes to the freneticism and distraction, yeah, some of what I'm doing here that I just described with spaciousness is helping us um, find Buddhist resources to help us slow down and pay attention, keep our eye on the ball. Getting back to the other thing we started with, the consumerism, materialism thing, our high-impact lifestyle. Um, Obviously, the challenge there is how to simplify our lifestyle, how to lower our carbon footprint, and what might be Buddhist resources that be helpful there. One thing I've thought about is how um, a lot of the mental states outlined in Buddhism, like the opposites of the greed, greed, ill will, and ignorance, the three poisons, You know, generosity, loving kindness or compassion and wisdom. And as many of you know, yeah, Buddhism has lots of lists of detrimental and healthy mental states. You know, just like certain religious traditions have long lists of um, different categories of sins. You know, if you were brought up Catholic um, or different categories of vices, like the seven deadly sins versus different um of uh, virtues you know like the theological virtues of faith hope and charity buddhism as you know in its kind of moral psychology and we see this a little bit more in early and theravada buddhism more than in zen uh, but really getting into this sort of psychological analysis of mental states that are detrimental that do get us into trouble and opposite mental states or maybe we should just call them values perhaps virtues That are cultivated as a way to purify the mind, overcome suffering, and basically wake up. A lot of those, as you probably already know, have very clear ecological relevance. Buddhism doesn't list up all or lift up these things in my list here um, out of some ecological agenda. They are really looking at our psychology, what mental states get us into trouble, what sort of mental states could be liberating. But if you look at the main mental states Buddhism historically has lifted up for 2,500 years, a lot of them have significance in terms of a simpler, lower-impact way of living. Uh, restraint, simplicity, contentment, um, recognition of what we receive. Um, the Japanese term "own," uh, which refers to all of the inputs, all of the blessings we get um from our parents from you know the environment other animals our teachers on and on and on which fosters an insight into interconnectedness into dependent origination or as Thich Nhat Hanh calls it interbeing and this leading to uh, gratitude and out of gratitude um, a stronger inclination to give and be generous Uh, Respect in the sense of valuing one's objects. As many of you know, this is a key Zen virtue in terms of making the most of things. Don't throw away that chipped coffee mug. You know, use it to the utmost. Nurture the tools. Keep them clean and polished. Keep everything um, organized in good shape as a way of showing respect and gratitude toward that tea bowl, toward that hammer toward your car, um, your old favorite shirt, whatever it might be. Um, And again, yeah, the value of non-harming, compassion, uh, the value or virtue of patience. And partly what I'm doing in the book is looking at how some of these values, perhaps even virtues, can be worked with in daily life to bring about a simpler, less impactful way of living that actually is more rewarding rather than some kind of self-sacrificial deprivation. Also in the book, I I look a bit at Zen monasticism as offering a kind of model or template for our homes. Um, I sometimes play with the idea of home monastery, home as a place of practice, not just in terms of having, you know, a Zabuton and a Zafu in the corner to sit Zazen, but also a monastery, a place of practice for cooking, cleaning, doing daily activities. And as some of you know, there is an approach to monastic living in Zen where daily activities, not just sitting in Zazen, cooking meals, raking the rock garden, washing the veranda with wet rags, um, all of these activities, serving tea to guests, are understood as forms of practice. And we could talk more about that if you'd like in the uh, discussion time. The other thing, um, thinking about way of living that's both fulfilling and ecological and engaged, is thinking about, yeah, our home, our place of practice in a broad sense, being embedded in nature in a specific place. And again, one type of ignorance, like we saw earlier, that other slide, is that sense of being separate from nature thinking I'm existing in here and nature is happening over there, out in the woods or far away or whatever that might be. And here, the Zen tradition's way of relating to the natural world offers some resources. Now, this can get overstated. Sometimes people like D.T. Suzuki talked about the Zen love of nature or the Japanese love of nature in ways that did get a little idealized um, and exaggerated. But Zen does offer various resources, and I, I map these in the book um, for connecting with the natural world, um, appreciating its beauty, and out of that, being more apt to value it and even act to conserve it. And one of the things that I find especially interesting, and I play within the book, is how Zen practice, um, the Zen orientation to helping people overcome That entrapment in dualistic modes of experiencing me and the not me, especially as that relates to me and the natural world and how Zen practice and other resources can help us realize our embeddedness in nature as nature. Again, this is this idea of dependent origination, conditioned arising um, or interbeing and help us thereby overcome that felt sense of separation and not that everyone's going to go out and sit zazen. There are other ways that this can be fostered. Um, but overcoming, yeah, that sense of separation nowadays, people on their computers, busy watching TV, not getting outside, not realizing that nature is happening here in my body, in my act of breathing, where I'm exchanging gases with the trees, taking oxygen from them, offering carbon dioxide to them. Um how we're so oblivious to that and how i think zen offers resources for coming in on that at least you know small part of the bigger problem and out of that realization of our embeddedness a greater propensity not necessarily but i think people are more apt to appreciate value and care for that nature they now feel more embedded in now that gets into the whole question and i'll just move through this a little quickly about um buddhism and animals as part of nature um, and historically that's been a mixed bag in terms of early buddhist views of animals um, other views down through the past two and a half millennia but one thing is i've been working on this book um, and also reading things about nature and ecology that i find interesting I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with David Abram. He wrote a book called The Spell of the Sensuous. Um, He was a magician, street musician, doing tricks on the streets of Europe, um, panhandling and traveling around as a young guy, um, but also became interested in the interaction between magic and shamanism and spent a lot of time studying with shamans, living in indigenous cultures, and basically became highly attuned For lack of a better expression to the animistic worldview of indigenous cultures and in spell of the sensuous um he's bringing a lot of western philosophy but he's talking about how yeah we humans are embedded in a sensuous reality with our senses taking things in affecting things around us and how non-human animals are intelligent presences who are speaking their own languages interacting in this kind of energy, sensuous, intelligent energy field in very sophisticated, intriguing ways. And I think, you know, when Buddhism talks about animals, yeah, as you may know, there's talk about, okay, they're fellow sentient beings. Um, They may get reborn as people. We may get reborn as animals. They're on the path to breaking free from rebirth like we are. And then The tradition kind of leaves it at that i mean it's a great step to say animals or non-human animals are fellow sentient beings striving ultimately toward awakening but it doesn't necessarily get into what is the nature of animal sentience insofar as they are sentient beings what really is going on if we are going to be sophisticated thinking about diet or how we use land or interact with nature How can we make distinctions between different types of animals? You know, does, for example, a tick carrying Lyme disease have the same moral standing as a chimpanzee or a dolphin? Um, How do we make distinctions? Is it okay to eat clams because they don't have a nervous system, but not so okay to eat a chicken, which will probably feel pain or terror when it is slaughtered? Buddhism doesn't necessarily get into a real sophisticated way of talking about um, non-sentient animals. And that may be something, whether Buddhism's talking about environmental ethics or trying to make an argument about animal rights or human moral responsibilities to animals we may or may not eat, um, there's a lot of work Buddhism needs to do there um, to deal with those issues in a more sophisticated way. And so in the book, I'm thinking a little bit about Aram, and other resources for developing Buddhist thought about those sorts of things. Also, in terms of um, how we live in relation to nature, um, some of you may be uh, folks who've read Gary Snyder's poetry, his essays. One of his most famous essays is entitled Reinhabitation. And just simply put, and I won't get into the details here, as part of being attuned to nature around us, in a specific place, locating our home in a place. He talks about re-inhabitation as a way in your local area, in your watershed, in your bio region, really studying the hydrological cycles, the geology of the plates, the flora and the fauna, indigenous people who came before you in that place on whose land you're probably occupying as a settler colonialist invader. Um, and to really know your place and that being a way to steward it, to take care of it for the long haul. In other words, Snyder's saying, yeah, it's great to think about ways of being in a meditative state in nature and temporarily overcoming any felt sense of separation and feeling at one with the sunset, but in terms of really protecting nature and living ecologically. We also have to do other things like study the place. Science does have a place here in terms of taking care of our place and fully inhabiting it. Now, the thing that comes up here, of course, everything I've talked about so far really has to do do with us and our individual lifestyle. Um, Slowing down, paying attention, um, living differently in my home, taking care of nature around me. And what's looming in the background is the whole question of, well, is that sufficient? What about other factors that really play perhaps even a larger role in causing the climate crisis or exacerbating it or hindering solutions to it? Like more powerful, broader level actors, institutions, structures, systems, maybe economic models like the growth paradigm that also play a role. In other words, if we just focus on lifestyle change, but not structural change, we end up blaming the individual. If only people had their act together as these destructive American consumers, everything would be fine, which, of course, lets certain powerful actors off the hook. Fossil fuel industry lobbying for different types of subsidies that makes it harder for the federal government to give subsidies to renewable energy scale-up endeavors um, or resistance to having a carbon fee and dividend, a kind of carbon tax. Um, and we can go on and on there in terms of um, larger structural problems that need to be addressed. We can you know, recycle and cut back on eating meat and buy an electrical vehicle and go on and on. But of course, ultimately is that sufficient given these larger structural problems. And so that gets us into the whole question of, all right, how do we begin begin moving in that direction? One thing I look at in the book, and this sort of overlaps lifestyle change and structural change, but it's consideration of community, Um, the importance of community, whether it's our sangha, the environmental group we're working with, or our local community, our neighborhood, our town, our city block, our city, whatever it might be, um, both for reducing our negative impact and for a kind of resilience as, yeah, once we hit peak oil or certain economic systems implode, we may be working more locally and relying on others for our food, for our energy, et cetera. And also, of course, the importance of community for activism working together with others whether it's a mass movement a local environmental group kindred spirits to engage in activism and this brings us to one of the biggest questions earlier i was saying maybe buddhism has more to bring to the table in certain areas rather than others but the whole question is you know as a tradition or, as all of us as Buddhist practitioners look at all the resources, the doctrines, the practices, the rituals, the values, the ethics of Buddhism, what do we have to draw from that goes beyond greening our lifestyle or slowing down and paying attention? As we've seen, that's kind of low hanging fruit. Buddhism offers a lot. But when we turn to activism, to speaking truth to power, to going out and challenging, these structures of power that need to be addressed to have a true resolution or at least mitigation of the climate crisis, how equipped is Buddhism to help us grapple with these larger systems? Now, one issue that comes up, and some of you may be aware of this, is historical Buddhism hasn't been activist. Now, we can point to certain, you know, um, minority Buddhist groups or certain interesting Buddhist mavericks or certain moments where Buddhists have resisted the government, the status quo, whatever it might be. But by and large, as you may know, Buddhism has been um, fairly accommodating of the status quo and not as engaged in activism to bring about certain types of societal, political, economic change, these structural changes. And I'll just go very quickly here. yeah, there are a lot of factors that account for the traditional lack of Buddhist activism um, compared to other religious traditions, less speaking truth to power, you know, dying for a cause, getting arrested. Um, part of it has to do with early views of nirvana as transcendent of this world, as something unconditioned, the exception to interbeing. Um, not so much the case in Zen, but it's there in the early tradition. A uh, historical focus on individuals, how can we help this individual purify their mind of greed, ill will, and ignorance, or overcome their entanglement in their dualistic mode of experiencing? And it's often focused on, yeah, existential suffering, my own kind of spiritual anguish, not so much other forms of suffering. Also, Zen and certain other types of Buddhism say, you know, everyone suffers, whether you're, you know, a rich person like Bill Gates. Or someone who's just got in prison for, you know, saying something back to a cop who was racist. Um, all of those people can awaken and you can awaken regardless of your social situation. Um, whether you're, you know, living in your big gated community or you're in a prison cell awaiting trial. Also, you get deterministic views of karma. If someone's poor, that's because of stuff they did in the past life. And if they have their act together now, they'll do better in the next life. And you can see how that could lead to a certain passivity. You know, people are reaping their just desserts if they're sick or poor or oppressed. It must be something they did in the past. But, you know, if they grin and bear it, they'll be better in the future. Um, Certain facets of Zen, a kind of approach in terms of peace of mind that is a kind of going with the flow. Um, the zen expression ninun, according with circumstances um, which does result in a kind of accommodation of the status quo Um, a lot of the emphasis on yeah letting go of self letting go of ego humility and does that i mean we could talk about this perhaps today does that lend to people being less willing to assert their interests their needs their rights Oh, no, I should be self-negating and humble as opposed to standing up for myself. Um, we also get Buddhism traditionally in more groupist cultures um, as opposed to more individualistic cultures like here. We also have, you know, the Buddhist um treatment of anger or ill will. You know, right there is one of the three poisons, these three key detrimental states that cause suffering. um Is there room in Buddhism for righteous anger? And nowadays, as some of you know, people are working with this, talking about, um, you know, it's not so much feeling anger, even though traditional Buddhism saw that as, you know, having devastating consequences, it's more what we do with that anger. Um, So, yeah, Buddhists now are starting to work with anger. But historically, um, yeah, it was something people were not willing to uh, see as positive. Also, yeah, the aversion to conflict and violence. Um, That, too, resulting in a certain resistance to activism. And like what I said earlier, that kind of Buddhist institutions, and I know Japan more than other Buddhist countries, um, but Buddhist temples being in this quid pro quo, kind of you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back relationship with ruling powers, Um, the lack of a notion of social justice, you know, karma is there as retributive justice you'll reap, you know, the just rewards or punishment for your actions, Um, you know, you shall reap what you have sown, but not social justice in terms of um, compensatory justice, you know, like reparations, things like that, um, or restorative justice, these other ways of talking about justice um, that we often hear. Also, in terms of activism, just the decentralized character of Buddhism, um, much harder to mobilize buddhists insofar as buddhist institutions or denominations are often you know diverse and far apart in time and space not necessarily having something like for example the catholic church where the pope can come out with a statement and parishes and parishioners can kind of rally around that Um, less of that in Buddhism, as you probably know. And then I'll just refer to uh, you to an essay in the Journal of Buddhist Ethics recently by Amod Lele, who's saying that, yeah, there have been a lot of Buddhist thinkers over the years who've argued for disengagement, who've warned against getting involved in politics, in activism. um, And that, too, has been operating in the background. That being said, and I'll just uh, wrap it up with two more slides, and then we can open it up here. There are a lot of um, ways you can think about Buddhism really supporting activism as opposed to undermining it, like we saw in the past two slides. Um, though Buddhism traditionally has privileged that more kind of religious, spiritual, existential suffering in Buddhist texts where they analyze types of suffering, physical suffering, pain from disease, pain from starvation, pain from torture and warfare, and other forms of violence is seen as a type of dukkha, a type of suffering, and by extension, something that merits our attention. Also, you'll see certain uh, resources in Buddhism saying, yeah, it's not necessarily the case that we all suffer, Bill Gates or someone unjustly imprisoned, but no, Um, There are Buddhist voices that push back against that and say, yeah, probably the configuration of Chris Ives emotional existential anguish that I may be going to Zen to work with or to work on the exact configuration of my suffering existentially or whatever will probably be different than that of, yeah, fill in the blank someone in another part of Boston who is female, black, maybe struggling with certain things, um, their suffering is going to take a certain configuration that is different than mine. And hence, social and economic conditions are relevant even to that kind of suffering, not just physical suffering, who's hungry, who has a full belly. And the practice of the path Um, ultimately is affected by external conditions. Um, Despite the rhetoric you'll hear sometimes about how you can wake up in any situation, whether a jail jail cell or a mansion. Uh, Reggie Ray says, you know, Buddhism throughout its history affirms the health, safety, well-being, and sanity of one's life situation often determines one's ability to follow the path. Therefore, activism to transform that life situation seems totally acceptable, if not needed, um, from a Buddhist angle. Also, um, I think in your sangha, you call them the four vows, if I'm not mistaken. Otherwise, the fourfold great vow, uh, the implied duty to take action. Um, I forget your exact translation, but, you know, however innumerable sentient beings are, I vow to liberate them from suffering, that first of the four vows. Um, does imply a duty to take action, um, and the whole idea of the bodhisattva and the bodhisattva functioning or bodhisattva activity does point to, especially if we see suffering more broadly than just simply the mental anguish that someone might bring to on around their koan, but suffering as poverty, violence, warfare, etc. Yeah, the whole ideal of the bodhisattva is someone who responds to suffering in all of its forms. Also, yeah, the other argument is, in some ways, even though a lot of us may be shy to get involved in activism or a little afraid or don't feel we have the time, you can also make a Buddhist argument for it in terms of certain benefits. And, you know, we could talk about this. Maybe there are other things. But as maybe many of you know, you know, when I think about going to a march or a protest... Or uh having a yard sign or writing a letter to the paper or talking to my neighbors about something that's before the city council, it's often a good mirror on my own fears. You know, am I going to piss off my neighbors? Or am I attached to my kind of you know, warm and cozy relationship with my neighbors? And I don't want to jeopardize that by speaking out. Um, or yeah, do I have ill will? Am I angry at those oil executives or those developers who didn't want to have solar panels in that public hearing about their development scheme. Um, activism is a way to cultivate generosity and compassion as we give of ourselves, as we reach out and look at human and non-human beings who are suffering because of the climate crisis um, camaraderie and community gained through activism a support not only for doing good in the world but support just for our own spiritual path as well you know having kindred spirits friends on the path activism is a way of looking at interbeing in a more macro socioeconomic form not just you know What you often see in Buddhist talk of inner being is how, you know, all these factors came into the piece of bread before me, the farmer, the sunshine, the water. I mean, that's all important and all relevant. But often, yeah, interconnectedness is limited in Buddhist discourse nowadays to things like food, people around me. And activism is a way to realize those larger, in a sense, structural networks that were all embedded. Um, the American political economy, capitalism—you know, our government—with the lack of uh, campaign finance reform. Also, you know, activism is a way to overcome inertia, doubts about oneself, despair, uh, perhaps even gain what Joanna Macy calls active hope. Also, activism is a way to fulfill those four vows, your bodhisattva vows. A way to serve, you know, what the Dalai Lama talks about is universal happiness, um, or other people refer to as the common good. The other thing that Buddhism is relevant to, and I'll just wrap up with this um, Stephanie Kaza has written about how Buddhism not only can offer a rationale for getting involved, but can support you once you do get involved. Um, And she highlights things about, again, interdependence or dependent arising. Uh, realizing how we're all connected to the problem. We're all part of the problem and we can all be part of the solution. Um, Yeah, the importance of non-harming and compassion as we approach activism. The non-dualistic view, avoiding us, them ways of looking at it. We're the good guys, those guys over there are the bad guys. And in that way, failing to find common ground or getting stuck in our anger. Uh, The Buddhist emphasis on intention you know what are our intentions are we coming at the problem out of you know rage or spite or out of genuine concern for the well-being of the world um also buddhists you know help us get around our self-attachment whether it's you know aggrandizing ourselves and feeling self-righteous like i'm a an activist and you're a slacker or attachment to certain outcomes um to add to other things yeah key Buddhist virtue of patience or perseverance in Sanskrit, Kishanti, um, one of the six perfections in Mahayana Buddhism, how that, too, can help us with frustration and burnout. Uh, Joanna Macy talks a lot about bodhicitta, that desire for the welfare of all beings as giving us a foundation for activism. And, like in this last quote, by strengthening compassion, we give fuel to our courage and determination. By refreshing our sense of belonging to the world, we widen the web of relationships that nourishes us and protects us from burnout. So, yeah, I think Buddhism offers some resources for people who are involved in activism with all the challenges that entails. And then the last thing, and I'll just end with this slide, is okay. We can talk about activism, but what sort of activism? And at the end of the book, I just offer some personal reflections on what we can do at the individual level. And yeah, this is partly lifestyle change relative to the climate crisis. But at the local level, you know, whether it's a local environmental group tracking development in our town, are they building net zero buildings or not? It's something I'm involved in with here in in Watertown, Massachusetts. More regional, what's happening at the state? Um, Any kind of, you know, climate legislation at the national level? What about a carbon tax or maybe a revenue neutral fee and dividend program? Or, you know, what did Biden come up with recently uh, with that piece of legislation? You know, what has Joe Manchin and others done to undermine that? Um, How can we participate in terms of lobbying for that? Uh, Or the Green New Deal, working on campaigns for people who are running for Congress, who might care about the climate crisis, or might be willing to entertain the possibility of some kind of campaign finance reform to lower the impact of large corporate interests, overcome the Citizens United Supreme Court decision. Um, And then at the international level, yeah, what can we do as citizens relative to things like the Paris Accords? Or other sorts of uh, endeavors. So that was a lot. I know uh, that was fast and furious. um, And uh, I just wanted to offer you that overview. And maybe now we can uh, drill down a little, uh, see what jumps out at you, things that don't make sense or seem like distortions of Zen or other forms of Buddhism or whatever's on your mind. So thanks for bearing with me. But that's the fast and furious overview of the book I'm writing. Thanks for your patience. (laughs) Thank you,
1: Chris, so much. That was extremely rich. Um, A whole lot of, of, uh, I think, very useful things. Uh, I have specific points to add, but I I won't unless there's nobody else who wants to speak. But uh, just thank you. Very, very helpful. uh, Very rich. uh, And especially in the last part about activism hindrances and helps to that from buddhism so um let's open it up now david ray you can call on people either in the room at ebenezer or on the zoom screen
2: um, thank you so much all right i'm going to try to track chats here too that might be a way i can hear from people um, let me just start off if it's okay with all of you dylan drop something into the chat here um yeah, let me just see it. Um grew up outside of Boston. Um yeah, the ecosattva vows. Um Dylan, do you I forget. Dylan, are you on Zoom here? Yes, he is. Um, David, can you let do Is he muted by you or just self-muted?
3: <laughs> Dylan can unmute. Dylan, go
2: ahead, please. Dylan, do you want to mention your yeah, you mentioned the uh Ecosatva vows, is there anything in particular with
3: that? Uh, Dylan says
2: his audio is not so good. Okay, that's fine. Um, Yeah, um, it's great that you have that. And I I looked at them briefly earlier. I was looking on your website at some of the chants. but is is maybe others can speak? Is that a core part of your practice? Is that a chant that's often done um, as part of your daily practice or weekly? We
3: do it in, in the morning after our after morning zazen as as part of our daily service in the
2: morning. And are do you chant that in lieu of the traditional five precepts or together with? Uh,
1: not with the five precepts and. and... I'll just mention, uh, I'm not sure if the eco vows are done uh, Monday through Wednesday morning, but um, Friday morning, Dylan leads a after Zazen uh, Decolonizing Consciousness group. We were reading uh, Ibram X. Kendi's ant, uh, book on how to be an anti-racist, and we're now reading a wonderful book by Zenju Earthland Manual on the way of tenderness. Uh, so I would recommend to anyone who has time, 8 a.m. Uh, Friday morning, Chicago time, uh, to come to that uh, zazen and wonderful discussion.
2: That's great. You're doing that. Thank you. Yeah, please, David.
3: Thank you so much, Chris, for that. Thank you. Um, I, I have a lot of things that I want to ask you about and, and talk to you about, but but I think the thing I want to focus on is very early on what you said about the relationship between. Um, craving and, and clinging, and the relationship between desiring, uh, which sounds like the logic of consumerism, and then the, the logic of clinging, which is wanting to keep the stuff that, 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 that somebody has. Um, certainly in the Western philosophical tradition, Plato already says that, that clinging is a form of desire in the symposium. He says, you know, um, if, if somebody says, I have what I want, is that person have they gotten free from desire and Plato says absolutely not. Yeah. What they desire is they want the, the the eternal continuance of the of the thing that that they have so they're still they're, they're, they're still desiring and so i was I, i'm not sure if, if, if I followed like what you, what you're trying to do in that part of your in that, in that part of your argument are you trying to say clinging counts as a form of of craving? And therefore, the problem that we might think is consumerism is a, is a broader problem. And and then I kind of wonder why you use the term materialism. I mean, it's it's, it's a try yeah. to term, but, but I'm curious about all that.
2: Yeah, what I'm working on there. Um, so let's just start with the Buddhist part and then turn to consumerism. Um, yeah, I think when you look at um, desire or like, you know, in early, early talks, when the Buddha talked about tanha, you know, tershna in Sanskrit, that thirst um it implies that yeah i'm thirsting for a glass of water or a beer or something um i'm craving something i don't have that will quench my thirst um and i think you know when you look at how it gets developed in in other buddhist texts buddhist doctrines yeah we can think of desire um as the second of the four noble truths you know the the main cause of desire that the buddha talked about in his early sermons And then, of course, people bring in the flip side, ill will or aversion, dislike, and then ignorance for the three poisons. Um, But as we develop the the desire, one of the three poisons, I think it it does take both forms of craving things we don't have and clinging to things we do, quote unquote, have, you know, at least temporarily. And in that sense, it's in sync with Plato. And the reason I'm bringing it to bear on consumerism I think often when people talk about consumerism and um and and including Buddhists yeah they're often saying you know the problem is you know we're here in this consumer society we got advertising we got peer pressure and we always you know want to get more and more whether it's you know oh a second home a second car a hot tub not just my shower um And people often think of um, consumerism and advertising as something that stokes desire for more and more, again, more craving. And I think if we look at, you know, well, let's just talk about the ecological impact of the quote-unquote average, and let's just limit it to the United States, the average resident here, um, those who are, you know, fairly well-off and privileged, middle class or whatever and above. Um, Most people don't necessarily buy into that. Um, You know, they may get seduced and feel like, yeah, I should go to the new restaurant that all my friends are talking about. But most people don't have that active craving like, yeah, I must get a second house. We're not quite as driven. And maybe the bigger problem, if we're really going to deal with a climate crisis, is not consumerism as this um, always unsatisfied craving for more and more or the newer and newer iPhone or car or whatever, but rather it's just our lifestyle. Even if you don't want more, a second home, um, just the, the kind of normal way of living, separate from a desire for more has a huge environmental impact. And I think for most people, um, if they think about, yeah, what I might need to do to, uh, you know, deal with a climate crisis, um, you know, the bigger issue isn't so much, oh, I mean, I can't buy the second house. People can let go of that, but, oh, I got to stop eating meat. I've got to dial back the air conditioning. I can't go down to the Caribbean when I'm feeling depressed in midwinter in New England or Chicago. That's, you know, I think where the bigger issue is. In other words, resistance to simplifying. um, And that maybe is a kind of materialism rather than consumerism, materialism in the sense of attachment to, certain material conditions, um, having the AC, the steak on the grill, the tickets to go to, you know, the Turks and Caicos on vacation in February, um, that that may be the bigger problem than, you know, desiring more and more the consumerism thing. So that that's, I think they're both there and they're both important, but um, Buddhists often zero right in on consumerism and I, it may be a little wide of the mark.
0: Yeah, please, Jan. Um, There was so much in this talk today that I really, really like. And uh, I wrote a lot of notes. And I'm torn between telling a personal story and telling a story of activism in the larger sense. And so um, I'm going to try to control it. Number one, today... Um, I learned a new most important problem in the world, and it, it's like they're they're generating like flies these This is the most important problem in the world. This is the most important problem to combat climate change and these very, very passionate people explain to you the details of what it is that is causing these terrible climate problems. And I have to say, I am so grateful to the people who study these problems and who tell us about them. And I wish that there were some way that we could consolidate everything and have a have a united front against what is causing and what has caused the climate problem
3: mm-hmm.
0: um, because you I think a lot of people know that for me the most important problem in the world is nuclear power, and i I have to control myself not to go into that uh, it's just important to realize that every nuclear reactor is also a nuclear target. Mm-hmm. And um th- that's, that's become really obvious. I'm going to stop. Okay. The second thing I wanted to bring up was one day, my daughter in law came to me and she said, um, I've decided to divorce David, who was my son. And I was so upset by it. That the only thing I could think of to do, and I was amazed at myself for this, was go shopping. And I went shopping. Now I realize if we had had the kind of a talking family that we didn't have, we could have talked. <laughs> but I went shopping. And um, I can show you what I bought. I still have it it was a it was in Sausalito, I was in Sausalito, well, we lived in Marin County, and um I went to a very exclusive shop and I bought a sweater that was at half price for two hundred dollars <laughs> and it was an enormous comfort to me but i couldn't get over how surprised I was at myself for this being the way I handled the distress.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Jan. Um, and that's very, very real. Um, you know, you probably know the expression retail therapy where people yeah. are yeah, describing what you do. I mean, I, I own it myself. I, I In the book, I talk about sale seduction, where I won't buy necessarily things at full price, but when I get a catalog, especially from like REI or Eastern Mountains, I do a lot of hiking and backpacking. Yeah. Um, And it's amazing if I see a a certain weight of a fleece jacket marked down, it's amazing how my mind will kick in. I say, "Okay, I don't have a a layer that's quite that warm. That would be perfect when I'm hiking down off of Mount Washington and it's 50 degrees. And I'm and wow, it's like and, you know, I have plenty of layers I could layer and deal with that scenario. But my mind is immediately finding a rationale for getting it. And it's often, yeah, when I'm feeling stressed out or a little depressed. Um, But getting back to what you were saying in in your first comment, Jan, when you're talking about, yeah, coming together. um, I don't know about all of you, but, you know, when I think about Buddhism and activism, um, you know, one question I didn't address in the slides, and it's a little bit there in the book, is now, is there a unique form of Buddhist activism Or is there some way we can contribute to the solution or the mitigation of the problem by coming up with a unique kind of Buddhist uh, way of protesting or a Buddhist way of organizing? Um, And, you know, I'm sure Dylan knows about this and the rest of you. I mean, there are certain trainings in part of the book. I do describe what Buddhists are doing around the environment. And I talk about the eco sattva training and certain other options there. But also, you know, we may think like, oh, boy, you know, maybe you should have a Buddhist organization with a Buddhist methodology, a Buddhist form of engaging the issue. Um, but then again, you know, we have so many organizations. Yeah. If, if part of it is coming together, um, maybe we don't need to, you know, find or create a uniquely Buddhist approach. Maybe the bottom line for Buddhism is reducing suffering. And one form of suffering is all the stuff that's caused by the climate crisis. And so maybe the most Buddhist thing to do is to do a kind of cost-benefit analysis and simply say, what organization out there seems to be having the biggest impact on the problem? There is where I'll put my energy. I'll join 350.org or Citizens Climate Lobby or some other group. We don't necessarily have to invent a Buddhist organization. And yeah, you know, in terms of, you know, ultimately addressing whether it's racism or violence, war, the climate crisis, I mean, it really requires a mass movement. Um, I'll never forget being down in Boston in front of the federal building during the whole Occupy Wall Street thing and other occupies in other cities. And there was an Occupy Wall Street branch in Boston. and A lot of people had occupied the space in, in front of the federal building And Noam Chomsky came down from MIT and saw that a lot of the people who were assembled there occupying that space were young people. And I'll never forget what he said to them is, you gotta be ready to be in this for the long haul, because ultimately this kind of structural change is gonna require a mass movement, which is gonna require possible years of organizing and maybe different groups and organizations coming together like what you were calling for, Jan, and so, you know, maybe you know it's counterindicated we don't we probably shouldn't go out and try to create a new organization and and put a Buddhist name on it. Uh, maybe what we should do is to plug into an effective organization and network with others to you know work on that mass movement that you know ultimately may be needed to get to that tipping point. For meaningful structural change. Now, again, the climate crisis doesn't necessarily give us that long window. You know, mm-hmm. That's the thing, especially with this problem, is it's it's right in our face. It demands action now and quickly. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's an especially naughty problem in that respect. Um, we don't really have the luxury of waiting eight or ten years to get that mass movement going.
0: Well, I went to a, I went to a. a- Protest yesterday downtown in Chicago, and there were about twenty five people there max mm-hmm. i um, and uh they were commenting about it was just a straight anti war protest, and they were commenting about how it used to be thousands out there anti in, in anti war protests uh so it was interesting to see that that uh, all the people there participated fully, but there were only about twenty five of us.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Dan. Um,
1: uh, yeah, there's so much more to say, and there's a lot of people here who have a lot to say. So I'll just try and keep this brief. But, you know, there, we do have a Buddhist Peace Fellowship Chicago chapter, but mostly what we do is try and work together with other groups mm-hmm. um, just to say that. But uh, some of the some of the obstacles to activism that you talk about, uh, one is the the. the you know aversion to anger and i have that psychologically as well as you know the the idea that buddhists should be nice and not get angry but there is a traditional uh, commentary on that precept which says if you don't uh if you don't get outraged when it's appropriate that's a violation of the precept hmm. so you know there are you know we can find in traditional buddhism various supports for all this um the other thing is that a lot of it, East Asian Buddhism, as you were pointing out, is, is not counter to activism or discourages activism. I think we have an opportunity in American Buddhism that uh, Asian, East Asian and other Asian feudal societies didn't have where there was not uh, a, a sense of the possibility of acting, that we do have at least ideals of uh, Equal justice under the law and, and and participatory democracy and so forth, so that that allows us to in, uh, see our Buddhist practice in a different way and then the last thing about that 's related to that is that instead of seeing individual karma, uh, given the idea of non self that we also have collective karma mm-hmm. slavery and and racism, for example in this in in our culture affects all of us. So anyway, I just wanted to put those points in but uh, we only have maybe uh, five more minutes and I know there's a lot of people there out there who in at Ebenezer and online who have a lot of things to say so
2: I'll stop. Thank you, Sagan.
4: Christopher, thank you very much for your uh, talk. I've appreciated your books in the past, The Imperial Way, Zen and Zen Awakening in Society are, are wonderful books. I really appreciated them and I'm looking forward to this next one, especially after this talk. Um, I can my own thinking about this area and um, is based more on the fact that <laughs> Uh, The bodhisattva ideal, the vows, and the precepts are very flexible in providing a basis for taking action out of concern for the suffering of other beings and the the commitment to act for the welfare being of at least sentient beings. And I think that's a strength in a way, allowing uh, people to, as skillful means if you want, um, join Already existing organizations which have people who are very skilled, uh, and are dedicated full time to certain issues and forms of behavior and also, uh, society, different kinds of social and eco, socioeconomic analyses, uh, which can be critiqued perhaps in part from a Buddhist view, but, um, I think that allows, uh, Buddhist thinking and activity to be, not be bound by what, again, will necessarily be uh, bound by a certain intellectual tradition, social conditions, economic conditions, and so on. But I also think that um, uh, on a less uh, theoretical view, I just don't buy the necessity of anger for social action. I don't think that, (laughs) I think that, the Bodhisattva ideal is compassion, um, concern for the suffering of other beings, as the basis for action. And I, I think that that is uh, can be a strong motivation uh, beyond anger at the bad guy, which I think necessarily uh, gets caught up in desire to punish the bad guy. It also creates a, an othering that um, I think at the end of the day is 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 a problem. It's it's not. Ultimately
2: productive, um, um, But I, I am really looking forward to your book and what is your time frame for a print? Um, my sabbatical ends on January 17th when I go back into the classroom and uh, my two most recent books that were more sort of for a popular audience or broader audience, the Zen on the Trail book and the Meditation on the Trail book were published by Wisdom Publications. And um, the manuscript is now uh, with the editor and the chief uh, or the CEO and the editor. um, And I don't have a contract. I'm hoping they'll be uh, interested in it. I think they are. And so realistically, let's say I hear from them, I have a contract, I get the manuscript to them in January. Um, Yeah, it'll probably be about a year until the book comes out in terms of, you know, copy editing, the proofs, et cetera. So, Uh, Probably late 2023, like 14 to 18 months from now would be my best guess.
4: Well, I will be looking for it.
2: Yeah. But your comments about anger, too. Yeah, um, I I agree. I don't think that, you know, getting angry or anger is a prerequisite to getting involved. Um, There are other ways to get there that don't involve anger. But then the question is, yeah, what does one do, do with one's anger? Um, Is the anger worked with as a kind of um, barometer that my psyche, my being is picking up on an injustice, on an issue and thank the anger for flagging that to me? Um, And then in terms of responding to the issue that the anger is flagging, yes, absolutely. How can we work with it, you know, in a sense, transform that energy not in a direction of attacking the bad guy, or setting up that binary, or, you know, losing control of that anger and saying and doing things that are counterproductive to one's cause, um, but yeah, transforming, transmuting that energy uh, in a constructive direction, um, and holding it as kind of a righteous anger whose energy can be used in constructive ways as opposed to anger that we indulge and, you know, make the situation worse or just piss off a lot of people that ultimately we may need to collaborate with or find common ground with. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you.
1: Well, if nobody else has anything, um, I I just really appreciate how rich your talk was, Chris, and uh, uh, so much that, all of us might consider, and um, so um, yeah, it's a difficult time, and and cl- climate the climate uh, breakdown is is with us, and uh, all the implications of it. Mass migrations coming up from people escaping uninhabitable zones, and anyway, I, th- I think we all need uh, Buddhism aside. Just as humans, we need to. Uh, res- to be aware and to look for ways to respond. So thank you very much for your guidance.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you, everybody. I hope it wasn't too much material. But uh, yeah, I see this is just a continuation of our dialogue. And I'll be looking for our next chance to uh, talk and continue the conversation. So thank you, everybody. It was a pleasure being with you.